Good morning, everybody. Great to see you and worship with you this morning. And before we read the next passage in Mark, why don't we just say a short prayer asking God to guide us in our study of his word. Will you bow your heads with me for prayer? Dear God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And you are so worthy of our worship, God. You are everything, Lord, that we might hope to be and beyond, God. You are perfect in all of your ways and wonderful and good and just and loving. And so, Lord, there's nothing better we could do than pause to reflect on you. <clears throat> and even more, Lord, to be touched by you, to be moved by the thought of your grace and your mercy for us that changes us from the inside out, Lord, into people who are more like you in all of your wonderful ways. And so we ask for your help this morning, Lord, to gaze on you properly, to be touched by you, to be moved by your wonderful grace and love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Together apart. That was a, uh, a paradox that I heard shared at some point during the quarantines that we experienced uh, during COVID. And um, it was a paradox, obviously, because you're either together or you're apart. You can't be both. <clears throat> and yet, the idea behind it was that all while we were apart in our separate homes during quarantine, we were together in being apart so that we could slow down the spread of, of COVID. <clears throat> and so it sounds kind of self-contradictory, kind of like it doesn't make sense. But upon further reflection, you realize, okay, there's a, there's a deeper meaning here. This, this is a paradox that has, um, has a truth to it. And as we begin the third act of Mark's gospel this morning, we begin reading about some of the paradoxes of Jesus becoming king. And one of those paradoxes is that as the Savior of God's people, Jesus came to judge God's people. <clears throat> now, when you first hear that, it clearly sounds a bit like a paradox. Because you either save someone or you judge them. You rescue them or you condemn them. And yet what we find as we examine Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is that the Savior of God's people, when he arrives, and he certainly does come to save not just his people but the world from their sins, but he also, in a very real way, judges them. That is, he condemns their insincere, self-righteous, fake worship. And that's what we're going to see as we pick up where we left off in Mark chapter 11. So, we'll start reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. And as we start reading here, see if you can catch how the Savior of God's people came to judge God's people. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on the road ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. <clears throat> Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why, uh, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, 
and it will, and we will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the town spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heavens. So Jesus begins making his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And this is no doubt intended to be his inauguration as king over his people. Certainly, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he will be crowned king, be given a throne, and most of all, save his people. Everything about it is screaming that this is the ceremony to make him king. He's riding a colt or donkey, just as uh, Zechariah said the king would. They're laying down their cloaks on the ground in front of him, which is what they did when Jehu in 2 Kings 9 became king. They're waving palm branches, which are a symbol of victory and restoration. And the list goes on. They even yell the coming of the kingdom of David. David, of course, was promised that his ancestor would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And the reason this is all so exciting, the anticipation is unbearable, is because when the Messiah takes his throne, he will save his people. He'll save them in a a whole host of ways. But certainly the most pressing on their minds is that he will save them from their oppressors. He will save them from the Romans. And they weren't crazy to think this. In Joel chapter 3, the kingdom of God is described as a time when all the nations will be gathered together and judged for what they did to Israel. And yet, after this procession, after this ceremony, after this riding into Jerusalem to become the king, something a bit strange happens. It's not what you would expect. Let's, let's see in the next verse what happens. It says this. It says in verse 11, So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Okay, so that's super anticlimactic. If everything about his entrance into Jerusalem was about him becoming king, then why does he go to the temple like Malachi said the Messiah would and then just leave? He looks around and he leaves. Where's the throne? Where's the crown? Where's the political revolution? But it gets even stranger. In fact, what happens right after that, then the next verse is a paradox. As we pick up reading in the next verse, see if you catch this paradox 
It says this, starting in verse 12. It says, The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So not only does he arrive in Jerusalem and not judge their enemies like they're hoping, not save his people, but then the next day, on his way back to Jerusalem, it says that he essentially curses a fruitless fig tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It's like, die. And that's strange because the fig tree is used several times in Scripture, often as a symbol for Israel. And so not only is he not saving his people like they're expecting, but then after having a look around, he curses a symbol that represents God's people. Why? Well, it says the fig tree has lots of leaves on it. But when he goes in closer and he peels back the leaves and he examines it closer, there's no fruit. Now, he says it's not, it says it's not the season for fruit, which on the one hand doesn't necessarily matter because it's just an illustration. But apparently, with these fig trees, the small fruit first comes followed by the big leaves, and then eventually the, the figs would ripen and be ready to eat when the season came. And if you were hungry enough, if there were big leaves, you could pick off the small fruits and chew on them. And so Jesus peels back the leaves, and he sees no fruit, and he curses it. And the point seems to be that Israel appears very religious. Israel looks like a place full of worship. There's a temple, and there's sacrifices, and there's prayers. But when you look closer, like Jesus does, what you find is that it's a sham, is that there's no genuine worship, no sincere fruit for God in Israel. And if you're still not sure that this cursing of the fig tree is somehow Jesus condemning the fake worship of his people, well, then what he does next drives the point home even further as he now acts out in real life the curse he just pronounced over the symbol of Israel. Let's pick up reading in verse 12. I'm sorry, in verse 15. It says this in verse 15. It says, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, 
but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. So first he curses a symbol of Israel. Then he goes right to the heart of Israel, to the temple, the center of worship, and he curses it. He flips over the tables, he kicks the stools, and he stops everyone from doing business. Why? Well, it would seem the way the fig tree illustration is placed before and after it, that it looks like there's worship going on. It looks like thousands of sacrifices are being made and people are coming in and drawing near to God. But it's fake. It's fruitless. It's insincere and self-righteous. And he says two things to make it clear. He says, he quotes from Isaiah first that his house, the temple, is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a quiet, reflective place where people can go, go and draw near to God in their hearts. But there's, there's no quiet prayer happening here. It's loud. There's money being changed. There's animals uh, making animal sounds and being bought and sold and conversations and hustle and bustle. And so he stops it. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then he says, secondly, he quotes from Jeremiah. He says, you've turned it, in so many words, into a den of robbers. And what that seems to be pointing to is, is the way the, the people who came would give their donations to the temple and the way they would purchase the animals for the sacrifices. You see, if they went through the trouble of carrying their own animal all the way to the temple, as soon as they got there, one of the priests might say, it's not fit for a sacrifice. Then they'd have to buy one from one of the business people who work with the priests, and it would be ten times the price. And when they wanted to give their donation to the temple, they, they could only give that in a certain coin. And if they didn't have that coin... There would have to be an exchange of coins to get the right ones. And guess what? The priests, in conjunction with the business people, would charge a hefty fee. And so a place that is supposed to be a place of worship has been turned into a profit-making business. And so Jesus flips over the money changers' tables, and he kicks the stools, and he stops everyone from buying and selling and a few chapters later, in chapter 13, if we're still not sure that this is him passing judgment on the self-righteous, insincere worship at the temple, he prophesies that the temple will be destroyed, that not one stone will be left on top of another. And so what application do we take away from the fact that the Savior of God's people came and judged their insincere worship. And I can't help but think that the lesson is to strive to be genuine in our worship. To 
not belong to a, a local body of believers, this one or another one, because it feels nice to have a reputation in the community as a good person who serves a lot. To, when we give, not give because we think that we found a way to manipulate God. Yeah, I'll give a thousand dollars, and then maybe God will give me back ten thousand dollars. I'll give so I can get more. To not serve in the church, in the community, simply because we feel sort of like we should, a sense of obligation that people expect us to serve, and God will be upset if we don't. But more and more to say, God, help me to belong to a local body so that I can draw near to you because those people are filled with your presence. They're your hands and feet on earth. And if I want to know you better, I need to draw near to where you are. And when we give, may we give and say, God, help me to give so I can remember what you've given me. Lord, may this giving teach my heart about the greatest gift better than anything I could think, ask, or imagine, which you gave to me when you saved my soul. And may it remind me that you give me everything I have every day. And as I let go of what I think is mine, may it draw me closer to the God who gives. And when we serve, may we say, Jesus, help me not to just serve because I feel like I should. I know we feel that way sometimes, okay? But Lord, help me to serve so that in my service, in this discipline, I might understand you better, the servant of all, the king of the world who came to lay down his life in service and who serves me every day. In other words, may we strive to find God's help to be genuine in our worship, to not just fall into outward religious habits that make us feel spiritual, that make us feel religious, that help us give a, get a reputation and maybe a way to manipulate God and maybe, maybe a way to make my life better, but may we encounter the person and the grace of God in all we do for him so that he can touch our hearts and change our lives from the inside out in the way that only he can do. And we need his help for that. We need his help because he's the one who has the power to make our worship genuine and sincere. And so we ask him for help, which is, uh, which is another paradox of Jesus being the king, is that Jesus answers impossible prayers. Now, that's a paradox. If something is impossible, it can't happen. And yet what we're going to find in this passage is right after he condemns the temple, right after he illustrates that the temple is corrupt and doomed for its sham, he teaches us something about prayer. In other words, he condemns the house of prayer, 
then reminds us that we will still pray. And not only that, but although we pray all over the world, not just at this house of prayer, which is doomed, even the most impossible prayers that we pray, that could never be, that could never be granted by any human explanation, if they're prayed and they're according to God's will, he will answer those prayers. That's what we see as we continue reading here. We'll pick up where we left off, and it's in verse 19. And as we pick up here, see if you catch this paradox of Jesus' kingdom. Impossible prayers get answered. He says this in verse 19. It says this. That evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. So that evening, they pass the fig tree and it's withered from the roots up, just like the temple will be destroyed completely. And when the disciples notice it, Jesus immediately teaches them something about prayer because the house of prayer is doomed. And what does he say? He says impossible prayers will get granted. He says believe in God and whatever you ask for, if you believe you've already received it, you will. Now, we need to remind ourselves But that doesn't mean that if you own one Ferrari and you really want a second one, but you don't have enough to afford it, if you pray for it hard enough and believe that he'll give it to you and you start sweeping out the driveway because you know it's going to show up any minute, that doesn't mean it's going to show up. (laughs) We know because we have the rest of the Bible to clarify what Jesus is talking about. Like James chapter 4, where he says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you don't receive. Because you ask so that you can spend what you get on your selfish desires. So this is not about asking for and believing that God will give us our sinful, selfish desires. And so we have to assume That what Jesus, it's Jesus after all, is referring to here is that when we pray for something, like 1 John chapter 5 says, that is according to his will, John says he will hear us. And if he hears us, we will have what we asked for. And so it seems that Jesus is reminding us that he has a plan for our world. It sometimes includes amazing, impossible things happening. And that if we pray according to his will, 
he lets us play a part in him doing in our world what can't be done. Our prayers, he responds as he planned to do amazing things. And it seems that the more that we abide in him and his word in us, the better we get at knowing his will, praying according to it, and seeing impossible things happen. That's what it sounds like in 1 John 15, where he says, if you abide in me and my word in you, you will ask whatever you want, you wish, and it will be given, it will be done for you, he says. And so, I don't know what, how you've experienced this passage in your life. What prayers you've prayed and you've believed that, Lord, if it's your will, I know you can do it. But my guess is that in a room with this many people, we could have some pretty crazy stories about how we've prayed and laid our request in faith and seeing God do some impossible things. Maybe it was someone you prayed for who, who didn't know the Lord, who seemed like they could never come to Jesus. Or maybe it was a, a bill that you had that you couldn't pay, and you just cried out to the Lord and laid it at his feet, and you saw it taken care of in an inexplicable way. Or perhaps it was a, a physical healing of some kind where you know it was going in one direction, and you poured your heart out to God and left it in his hands like Jesus and said, not my will but yours, and you saw him do something incredible. I know for me, the one that comes to my mind, since I'm the guy up here, was a friend of mine who I prayed for. We were growing up, and uh, I think I may have shared this with some of you before, but he he stopped, he kind of wandered away from the Lord, you might say. We grew up together. We, were, we would pray together and, and read the Bible together. And at some point, he fell in with the wrong crowd. We lost touch. He fell in with the wrong crowd. And he began just doing everything his friends were doing, which at that time meant not fellowshipping, hanging out with other Christians at all, of course. Uh, he began drinking heavily, partying, having premarital sex. And for some reason, I felt this burden for him as time went on, and I saw the path he was going down. And so I, like many others, we began to pray for him, that God would turn him around, bring him back, open his eyes to the path he was on. And I even set aside some specific time just because this like weight I was feeling was so strong just to pray for him and fast for him. And as the years went by, something Something that I think is fair to say incredible happened, if not impossible. And what that was, I was sitting in my dorm room at Biola Bible College. And I was getting the text message ready to send out to, to restart my Bible study. Um, we were, we were, we were going to, you know, we took in a break. We were starting up, I think it was for the fall. And I put everyone's name in there. And then I go to push the button to send it. And just before I do, this random thought comes in my head. I thought, well, why don't I send it to my friend? And I was like, that is so weird. Why would I send it to him? He's not part of this Bible study. He hasn't even been to church in years. And I was like, well, 
I guess it can't hurt. Boop, put his name in, and I sent it. After I sent it, my phone started ringing, and it was him. I said, hello? He said, Luke, two weeks ago, I gave my life back to Jesus. And when you texted me, I was on my knees praying for a Christian friend. He said, I told the Lord, please, just send me one person. I don't have any Christian friends left. And he said, I said those words, and I felt my phone buzz in my pocket, and it was you. And he came to our Bible study, and he gave his life back to the Lord. And the amazing thing, too, is I watched as each person in his family became on fire for Jesus, and the whole family was changed, and their lives came back to the Lord. And so Jesus reminds us here, the house of prayer was full of fake, insincere worship, and it was judged. But that doesn't mean that prayer has stopped. In fact, his people pray more than ever all over the world. And not only do they pray, but with Jesus on the throne as king, their most impossible prayers get answered. And because that is so powerful and such a privilege, we also remember to ask God for forgiveness. You see, this is one more paradox we're going to look at here. If the temple is destroyed and Jesus is the sacrifice for all sins for all time, then there's no more need for forgiveness, it would seem. If the moment we put our faith in Christ were forgiven of past, present, and future sins, then why would we ask Jesus daily to forgive us when we realize that we've done wrong? And yet, this is another paradox of the kingdom of God, is that those who have been forgiven ask for forgiveness. And it would seem that, that it's only appropriate that when you're going through your life and your walk with your closest friend and God, Jesus, and you realize that you've sinned against him, you've done wrong, that you wouldn't just say, well, that's okay, he already forgave me, but that you would restore that relationship. Not getting saved the second time, that only happens once. But say, Lord, I, I did something wrong. Will you forgive me? Not in a salvation way, but in a friendship way. And to know that you're always forgiven and brought in close. And that, that closeness, that, that, that joy of, of walking with the Lord, our closest friend, is so dear to us that Jesus, and so critical to our walk, that Jesus reminds us in this passage we're about to look at to be willing to forgive others who sin against us so that God will forgive us. Let's look at the next verse here. It's verse 25. And see if you can catch it. He says this, starting in verse 25. He says, But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins so he assumes that we will be asking for forgiveness. We who've already been forgiven of everything when we realize that we've sinned. 
And he seems to assume that this is so important to our spiritual lives that he needs to remind us that, hey, when you're praying, when you come to me for forgiveness, first forgive anyone that you need to forgive. And then I'll forgive you. Because it wouldn't be quite right, would it? If we came to God and said, please forgive me if I've sinned against you, God. But meanwhile, there's someone who's wronged us. Not God, just a person, an object of grace. And we're clinging on to that wrong. We're bitter and stewing over what they did to us. But Lord, will you forgive me? It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be congruent with his character, and so he doesn't. He waits for us to realize the massive disparity in the words that are coming out of our mouth so that we'll go or in our hearts release and forgive that person who owes us the debt so that we can understand the gravity and the glory of being forgiven by him. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we haven't been seriously wronged because we often are. Whether it's a small wrong or a big wrong, it's wrong sometimes when people are unfair towards us, when they steal from us, when they betray us, when they hurt us in one way or another. And the Bible never asks us to pretend like it isn't real or big or painful. It only seems to suggest that when it's compared to our sins against God that have been forgiven, it suddenly becomes microscopic. Because our sins are against God, the perfect, loving, good, holy God who has done no wrong. And the sins of others are against us. And so it's not that he wants us to pretend like we're not hurt or it's not real. He just wants us to fathom the depth and the breadth of his grace and forgiveness for us before, and, and, and it's hard to do that when we're holding on to something small in comparison. I think that's the point of the, the story of the uh, unforgiving servant in, in Matthew 18. The unforgiving servant, he's really been wronged. Someone owes him real money. One commentary says it's hundreds of dollars. But the reason why he's thrown in jail in the parable, it's because he doesn't appreciate that the debt he was forgiven of was so much bigger than the one he was holding on to from that person. I was on my computer the other day and I saw like a little news story flash by at the top of the screen. And it was some, it's mentioned something about a death row inmate, which always piques my interest. So I clicked the story and I started reading the article and it described a man who was going to be executed very soon. And as I read through the article, it said that his execution was proceeding even though a number of people had written and asked for it to stop. 
including well-known people. And then I kept reading, and this is the part that shocked me. It said, the family members of the victim have also written and asked for him to be spared. And then it goes on and it says, the family said in their letter, or I don't know, I can't remember if it was a letter or if they signed on to something, but they said, we believe that the victim would have wanted him to be spared. And I read that and I, I can't say I was like flooded with warm, fuzzy feelings or anything, you know, I just kind of read it and I was like, whoa, that's, that's difficult to wrap my mind around. But I think for us as followers of Jesus, if we are going to let go of our bitterness and hatred for those who've wronged us, I'm assuming on some level they've forgiven the guy, right, in that, in that story. They might not want him out of jail. He might be dangerous, but I'm assuming they don't have revenge in their hearts. And if we're going to move closer towards that kind of forgiveness for others, the key for followers of Jesus is to have an aha moment afresh about the total, utter, profound grace that God gives to us when we're saved. And when we comprehend the size and depth of that, it sets us free to let go afresh of that bitterness against that person who hurt us and wronged us so badly. And so I think the opening act of, of, of Act 3 reminds us to be sincere in our worship of God. And I think it reminds us to pray and expect for answers to even impossible prayers that are according to God's will. And it reminds us to, to forgive one another when we are wronged by each other so that God will forgive us and we can go back to walking close with him. There's just a few more verses here in this section that we're going to read where the authority of Jesus to curse the temple and to teach these paradoxes is questioned by those who should have seen his authority. We'll pick up reading the last few verses in verse 27. And it says this. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I tell you, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things, if you answer one question. Jesus replied, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves. Well, if we say, sorry, let me start over. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of the people, what the people would do, because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, um, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus answers their question about where his authority comes from by asking them a question that they can't answer. Something Jesus is great at doing. And the irony 
is that the teachers, that these leaders here, they should have recognized the leader, the king who has all authority. And yet it seems that he, when he comes and challenges and condemns their self-righteous, perfunctory worship, all they see is a threat. All they see is a threat to their power and their self-righteous religion instead of their king who comes to rule and reign forever. And so may we not make their mistake, but when Jesus challenges our pride and dares us to rethink our worship, may we open our hearts and ask him to come in and cleanse and speak and lead and forgive. Will you join me in prayer? Dear God, thank you for this chance to just ponder your words and be mindful, Lord, of, of what you've said to us and spoken to us. And God, may we just continue to mull over these verses and think about what you might say to us, God. And may we, as so often we're told to in Scripture, wait on you, Lord. Listen for your voice and your leading, whether it's one of conviction, God, that we need to come to, whether it's one of encouragement, Lord, whatever it is, God, may we patiently wait for you to speak to our hearts because we believe that you live, Lord, and you still speak and you're still worthy of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.